Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I hope you guys are doing super, super well. So welcome to episode 33. Today, we have a really crazy case. I feel like that's actually the perfect word to describe this case because I swear this sounded like a movie. It's not a movie. This actually happened in real life. These are real people that were affected by this and I think it does bring a lot of awareness as to what can happen to your mind during a marriage, during a divorce, and how you can be a completely normal person but then one day you can just snap. This is a case about a woman who gave pretty much everything to her marriage and to her children. I mean, being a wife and a mother was pretty much her only identity and she was used to living this nice, luxurious lifestyle where she was married to a rich man. She was a socialite, she was a PTA mom. I mean, this life just consumed her and she gave it everything. But then one day her husband decided that enough is enough and that he no longer wanted to be married to her. In fact, not only was he going to divorce her, but he was going to start dating his 28 year old assistant. Yeah, that definitely hurts. I think it's normal for someone to feel upset, for someone to feel hurt, and for someone to feel angry about this. I mean, yeah, definitely be angry because your husband is leaving you for a 28-year-old, but it's what you do with that anger and what you do with that emotion that really matters. And in this case, the reality of the situation was just too much to handle. And in this woman's mind, the only way to handle the situation was through murder. Today, we're gonna be talking about what happened to Daniel and Linda Broderick. There is so much information to go over so let's jump right in and let's talk about this truly insane and shocking case hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Daniel Broderick III was born on November 22, 1944 in St. Louis County, Minnesota to Daniel Broderick Jr. and Yolande Broderick. Daniel grew up in a large, tightly knit Irish Catholic family and he was raised in Pittsburgh along with his eight siblings. Daniel attended the University of Notre Dame before going to Cornell University for medical school. So he was a really ambitious person. When Daniel was in college, he was kind of like what some people might call like a geek. You know, he was kind of nerdy. He had these long, skinny sideburns, and he also had these round tortoiseshell glasses. He was short and gangly with ginger hair. So he was just 
So a lot of people were kind of geeky. In 1965, while he was a senior at Notre Dame, he met a girl named Betty at a college party. Daniel actually introduced himself to Betty by writing Daniel Broderick III MDA on a napkin and then passing it over to her. She sees this and she's like, what's MDA? And he says that it stands for medical doctor almost. So he's basically letting her know like, I'm almost a doctor. And that was kind of just like his way of like flirting and like getting in with Betty. Now, who's Betty? Well, Betty was visiting from East Chester, New York to spend some time with her friend who went to Notre Dame and she was invited there by her friend to watch the college football game and then go to a party afterwards. Betty was currently studying education at the College of Mount Sinai Vincent in the Bronx. So at this party, Betty and Daniel just start spending some time together and they found out that they were actually very similar and had a lot of common interests. They were both very ambitious people. They were really smart and they both wanted to be rich and just kind of live like a high social status life. They were also both very athletic and they had a really good sense of humor. So they just seemed to complement each other really well. Despite the stuff that they had in common with each other, Betty says that she wasn't really interested in Daniel in a romantic way. She says that he wasn't really her type physically. You know, Betty was a tall girl who was used to dating jocks. And as I mentioned, Daniel was short and he was kind of just a little bit geeky. So she wasn't really too sure about him, but Daniel was so persistent in staying in touch with Betty. So he had for sure been very taken by her. He told his friends that Betty was just absolutely gorgeous. And he even told people that he was going to marry her. And what he said is true. Like Betty was truly a really pretty person. So he was just adamant in like making this work, you know, making her, you know, fall for him. After this meetup, he started his semester at Cornell and he would constantly send Betty letters from there. And over time, Betty started to become charmed by all of his attempts to pursue her. You know, at first, like I said, she didn't really know what to do about him. But since he was so persistent and was like sending all these like romantic letters and flirting with her, she kind of started to fall for him. So she started sending him letters back. Now, Daniel's Cornell campus was in Manhattan, which was only an hour away from East Chester where Betty lived. So soon staying in touch through the letters turned into dating. They dated on and off for a few years, but Daniel knew that Betty was the one for him. He waited until she got her degree in education. And then on April 12th, 1969, four years after first meeting at the party, they finally got married. They had this really big wedding in Tuckahoe, New York, and they actually went to the Caribbean for their honeymoon. After they came back from the honeymoon, Betty moved into Daniel's Cornell dorm. Now at this time, Betty had started working as a teacher, so she was the only one supporting their household since Daniel was still a student. So it's obviously not the ideal situation. You know, when you get married with someone, I feel like you think you're gonna move into like your own apartment, into your own house, and just like start this like grand life. But Betty was moving into a dorm. So it's not the ideal situation, but she loved him, he loved her, and they were willing to make it work. However, now that they were married, you know, now that they had, you know, tied the knot, made things legal, their relationship started to change. When they were first dating, Betty felt like she had a lot more independence. You know, she had her own money, her own car, she was doing her own thing. But now Daniel was kind of like the man of the house and he was pretty much in charge of everything and she kind of just like followed his lead. So definitely the roles were changing and it was just a lot for Betty to adjust to. A few months after they came back from their honeymoon, Betty discovered that she was pregnant. 
Now, this was a lot for them because at this point, Betty had just started her new job. Daniel was still in school and they were living in the dorms. So, of course, this is like a lot for anyone to handle. Betty was definitely concerned about how they were going to raise this child in this type of situation. So, Betty went to her gynecologist just to do a checkup. And that's when they informed her that Betty most likely wouldn't be able to carry this baby to term and that she would probably end up losing the baby. Despite this news, Betty continued to carry the baby and she actually managed to hide the fact that she was pregnant from everyone at the university. Now, despite what the gynecologist said, Betty was able to have the baby and in January of 1970, the family welcomed their first child, Kimberly, and they were just honestly completely unprepared for this. They actually didn't even have diapers. They didn't have any clothing for the baby or anywhere to put her down. So they just ended up putting her in the dresser of a drawer. Because again, remember, they literally live in a dorm. So there's really not much room for a baby. Betty's mom sent over some clothing essentials from Saks Fifth Avenue to help them out with the baby. But it seems like they didn't really have that much support. A few years later in 1971, Betty became pregnant again with their second daughter named Lee. Now by this time Daniel had graduated from Cornell with a medical degree and instead of just like you know go getting a job you know getting things started he wanted to go back to school and actually study law you know he wanted to use both areas of expertise to become a medical malpractice lawyer he actually ended up getting into Harvard which of course is a very big deal so of course he was not going to let that opportunity pass by despite the fact that it meant that Betty had to continue to work to take care of the family and kind of be the main caretaker of the two babies. This is a really difficult situation for the family. I mean, imagine like your husband is in law school. He's super busy studying every single day. You have to balance a job, plus take care of two children all on your own. It's definitely a lot for anyone to handle, but Betty honestly believed in her husband's dreams and she knew that it would all pay off. So she decided to stick through with this and the family ended up moving to Massachusetts from New York. So in addition to Betty's job as a teacher, she was also a babysitter. She did some odd jobs. You know, she sold Avon products. She also sold Tupperware for extra money. And that money would go towards like their livelihood, towards the children, but it was also going towards Daniel's education. Daniel and Betty also did not have a car at the time because it was actually stolen. So Betty would have to take the bus everywhere. They also lived in a neighborhood where a lot of people didn't really speak English. So Betty just felt really isolated at this time. In February of 1973, Betty became pregnant again. So that's really only like one year apart from her last child. Betty went into labor, but Daniel was actually not there. He was actually gone on a ski trip with his friends, which is interesting. Like, why are you even going skiing around the time that your wife is supposed to give birth? And, you know, unfortunately, the baby did not survive childbirth. Despite this, Daniel didn't return from his trip early to be with Betty, so she was just dealing with this alone. I mean, she was dealing with having two kids by herself, all these odd jobs, and then also losing her baby all by herself. Now, after this, this was kind of like the beginning of a tough patch for their marriage because Betty just felt completely unsupported by Daniel as she went through something this horrible all on her own. Now, while Betty feels like, you know, Daniel just isn't doing enough, Dan Daniel was feeling like Betty just was never happy with him. He says that she just never felt satisfied with the time that he would spend with her and the children and that she also didn't understand his dedication to his career. He actually told the San Diego Reader, quote, she was never happy with me. That is an exaggeration. It wasn't true that she was never happy with me. There were periods of time where she was, but on a regular basis, she expressed extreme unhappiness with me and my dedication to my work and my profession and my attitude towards her 
and our children. He even accused her of ruining the first ski trip he ever took in his busy schedule by going into labor. Which is crazy to me. Like, I'm sorry, how is it her fault that she went into labor while you were on your ski trip? Like, why? It, it's just crazy. On top of that, he went to medical school, so he of all people should know that women can't control when they go into labor. So that same year in 1973, Betty actually attempted to take her own life because she just felt so trapped. She was only 23 years old at this time, which is crazy. Like, I think about it, I'm like, oh my God, imagine having two kids at 23 years old and like just having all these jobs and supporting your family and just having all this pressure on your back. It just must have been a lot, but thankfully she did survive this first attempt. That same year, Daniel finally graduated from Harvard and in 1975, Daniel and Betty moved to San Diego where Daniel got a job working at the Gray Carey firm. Betty and Daniel really became close with his fellow lawyers and with their wives and this firm kind of became their whole social world. Not long after their move, Betty got pregnant again and this time she chose to get an abortion. But soon after the abortion, she became pregnant again and then had another abortion. It's actually really crazy because according to Betty, Daniel never wanted to discuss the option of birth control. Betty had already been traumatized by the loss of their child and this just made it even worse. You know, having an abortion just isn't an easy thing and having it twice, like kind of back to back is a lot. Now, moving back to Daniel's perspective, the he says that they were constantly fighting and he even recalled that Betty had asked him for a divorce just two weeks after they had gotten married. He also says that Betty threatened to leave him often, but Daniel was raised Catholic, so he believed in the sanctity of marriage. So both of them made it work. However, eventually Daniel started to pay less and less attention to Betty and would sort of tune out whenever she talked. By 1976, Daniel slowly started to become successful and become the city's go-to lawyer for medical malpractice. So he was like rising up and just becoming more and more successful and just, you know, getting into this career while, you know, the marriage between them was just getting worse and worse. That same year, Betty gave birth to their first son, Daniel Broderick the fourth. They actually nicknamed the baby Danforth. At the same time, Betty was still taking shifts as a cashier and a hostess at a restaurant to keep the family afloat. In 1979, Betty gave birth to Rhett, the couple's last child. So the next few years in San Diego were actually kind of good for them. Daniel had started to make a name for himself and he soon left the law firm that he was working at to start his own medical malpractice. The couple were taking first class expensive vacations with their kids. They were sending them to summer camp. They hosted a number of extravagant parties and dinners every single year. They were so rich that they would actually pay for the people to come with them on trips. And they also owned five luxury vehicles. By 1982, it seemed like life was finally working out for them and Betty and Daniel felt satisfied with their roles in their marriage and in the world. Betty had stopped working at this point and she had more time on her hands. So she took an interest in interior design and started decorating all the rooms in the house with very expensive furniture. So she was just like living her best life. You know, she was a socialite in San Diego, hanging out with all of these lawyers and just like very high up people going on these nice vacations, living in this beautiful home. Everything seemed to be going well, but then everything started to go downhill in 1983 
when Daniel hired a woman named Linda to work at his law firm. So let's talk about her. So Linda Colkenna was born on June 26, 1961 in Salt Lake City, Utah to Catholic parents who had immigrated to the U.S. from Denmark in the 1950s. She was the youngest of four sisters and Linda's family was very religious and they would always pray before eating a meal. The girls were taught the importance of being, quote, good housewives from a very young age. Their parents thought that a high school education was enough for them and that they could work if they wanted to, but that they didn't need to have a career. The men that they would marry would be the breadwinners of the household and they would have children and then just take care of the house. When Linda was just 11 years old, her mom died of cancer. After that, she was raised by her dad, who later remarried. Now, Linda was extremely beautiful. She was charming, and she just loved telling stories. She was described as almost being perfect. The only thing that she struggled with, according to friends and family, was being punctual and on time. So in 1981, right after Linda graduated from high school, she joined Delta Airlines as a stewardess but she was actually fired a year later because of, quote, conduct unbecoming of a Delta employee. Now, apparently, Linda was caught making out and sneaking into the flight bathroom with a male passenger on an off-duty Delta flight. So she technically wasn't working when this happened, but still she was on a plane owned by her employers. But despite that, she was actually fired on the grounds of using obscene language towards another stewardess. After this, in 1982, Linda moved to Southern California to be closer to a guy that she had been dating. After the move, she took an assistant job at a law firm, and this law firm was in the same building where Daniel had his private practice. And that's how she even got into the circle. You know, that's how she even got to be close to Daniel because where she worked was in the same building as Daniel. Now, one day, Linda and Daniel were in the basement of the office building when they ran into each other. Daniel was 38 years old at the time and Linda was only 21. So they met in the basement, quickly chatted, and that was it. Now, Betty first met Linda at a Christmas party when she heard Daniel call Linda beautiful. Now, Betty was surprised at Daniel's compliment, like he never called anyone beautiful. Betty actually had friends who were models and he never even talked about them like that. So for him to just say that this like random girl from his office was beautiful was a lot. And, you know, she was kind of overthinking about it, but then she was like, you know what, I'm gonna just let it go. Like maybe it was just like a one-time comment. The next year in 1983, Betty took the kids on a month-long camping trip throughout Western US while Daniel stayed behind in San Diego. When she came back from this trip, something had changed. Apparently, Daniel and Linda had really hit it off and Daniel actually hired her to become his paralegal for his law firm. Linda didn't even know how to type really. She had no prior experience or any legal expertise. So Daniel kind of just hired her because she was cute and charming, not because she was qualified. Now, this is when Betty started to suspect that Daniel was having an affair with Linda. When she asked Daniel if he had any feelings for Linda or if he was having an affair with her, he said no, but it turns out that Daniel was lying. He was having an affair with Linda. Betty just knew that something was going on. You know, she knew that he was cheating on her and she even gave him a 30-day ultimatum to break things off with Linda, but Daniel continued to deny anything. You know, he said that there was no affair, no feelings, nothing. However, behind the scenes, Betty would hear from her friends that they had seen Daniel and Linda out and about in social settings. So she would bring this up to Daniel, you know, hey, my friend saw you, but Daniel would always just have an excuse and he would often called Betty crazy. So, of course, things were just not going well in the marriage. Like, 
Daniel was basically kind of just like gaslighting Betty every single day, despite like all the evidence and just like gut feeling that she had about the affair. He just kept saying no. And the marriage just was hitting a really rough patch. Daniel even skipped Betty's 36th birthday in November of 1983. And he didn't even give her a reason as to why he wasn't at her birthday. So she was just really struggling with all of Daniel's lies and her mental health hit an all time low. That night on her birthday, she actually attempted to take her own life for the second time, but thankfully she wasn't successful. Two weeks later after her birthday on November 22nd, it was now Daniel's 39th birthday. Now Daniel had told Betty exactly how he wanted to celebrate his birthday. He wanted to come home after work to a big family dinner of a roast beef and a homemade birthday cake. So Betty got to work, you know, she wanted to give her husband exactly what he wanted for his birthday, despite everything that had happened between them. And despite the fact that he missed her birthday without explanation, she just really felt like this could maybe like save the marriage and just help it out. So she started getting everything ready for his birthday. But that same day, a friend of Betty said that Betty should go to the office and make her presence felt there. And Betty kind of read between the lines and decided that she would just go to Daniel's office to surprise him. So I'm not sure if like the friend like knew maybe Daniel was cheating and didn't want to tell Betty directly like, hey, he's cheating, go to the office. So I think that's why the friend was just like, yeah, you should go to the office and like surprise him and like make a presence there kind of just like hinting at her like girl go to the office so Betty heads to his office but when she gets there she learned that Daniel had already celebrated his birthday with his co-workers and with Linda she also learned that Daniel had left the office and so had Linda and it was only 11 a.m in the morning at this point so Betty waited at Daniel's office till five o'clock for him to come back but he just never did. She then noticed that Daniel had a refrigerator and a stereo in his office. She looked inside the fridge and it was stocked with imported wine. And she also noticed that her wedding crystal was sitting on Daniel's desk. Then she went over to Linda's desk to, you know, kind of snoop around. And she noticed that there was a photo of Daniel on her desk, which I'm just like, what? Like if there's any proof that an affair is happening, I feel like that photo demonstrates that. Because why else would you have your boss's photo on your desk if it wasn't because you were in a relationship with him? So when Betty saw all of this stuff, she was so angry. And that day she went back home. She took out all of Daniel's clothing and she burned them. And the ones that weren't burned, she put paint on. So when Daniel later came home that day, you know, Betty confronted him about everything, about the photo, about how him and Linda were both gone. And he still denied having an affair. He came back that day on his birthday to his entire closet burned to a crisp and he just ordered his tailor to make more clothes for him. So like I said, I felt like what Daniel was doing to Betty was pretty much just gaslighting her. So let's kind of talk about gaslighting for a second. The term first started from a 1930s play where the husband keeps dimming the house's gaslight. And even though the wife can tell it's getting dimmer and dimmer, he tries to tell her that that's not true, basically trying to make her feel insane. And the current definition is pretty much the same. Gaslighting is psychological manipulation where the abuser is trying to distort their victim's reality and they question their own judgment. And they do this through creating self-doubt and confusion. The point of this is to coercively control the victim and gaslighting can have some long-term negative effects on people such as anxiety, trauma, and depression. Going back to the case, another year went by and in September of 1984, the family moved out of their home in Coral Reef to a five-bedroom rental house in La Jolla Shores which if you know, La Jolla is a really nice area. If you're from San Diego, like that is a place 
to be like those houses are absolutely beautiful the community is beautiful so it was a really nice and rich area for them to move into however not long after this move daniel said that he wanted to move out of the rental home by himself because he just needed some space still daniel denied that this had anything to do with linda and he just simply told betty that he just wasn't happy in the marriage anymore so daniel moved back into the coral reef home but not alone linda actually moved in with him so this whole time he's still denying the affair but then he moves linda into the family's old home which is just crazy in regards to this betty said quote he literally walked out three months after his 40th birthday party with a red corvette and a 21 year old are we the american joke or not if you weren't my husband i think you were real funny he's got a scarf around his neck and he wanted those ray-ban sunglasses from risky business i said you're it you're it you're the cover of midlife crisis magazine cool dan cool so basically she's saying like this guy's having a midlife crisis like first of all he's dating this girl that's much younger than him he bought her a red corvette he just seems like he was struggling with his life so he just wanted to do the typical thing that men do in a midlife crisis which is get a car have an affair and start dating someone younger than them so this was pretty much betty's last straw she drove up to the coral reef home that he lived in now with linda and she drove up with her kids and she kind of just dropped them off with all of their belongings she said to daniel you want to be apart from me see what it's like to raise a family by yourself so she kind of wanted to do this to prove to daniel like look at how much you need me like can you handle these four kids by yourself and like handle taking care of them and taking them to school and cooking and everything like no he probably couldn't because he's so busy at work so she just wanted this to be kind of like a wake-up call for him of like wow i really do need betty in my life so she basically just dropped the kids off which i don't agree with i feel like she was kind of using the children as like a manipulation tactic where it's just like here go with your dad just so your dad can see how hard it is to take care of you so after this, Daniel took the kids in and they actually stayed with him. But Betty would still barge into the house whenever she wanted. I mean, technically, she did own the house along with him and they hadn't divorced yet, so she had every right to enter the home. But Betty wouldn't just show up and just, you know, be normal. She would show up and do very crazy and erratic things. One time, she actually smeared a Boston cream pie that Linda had made on Daniel's bed. Another time, she threw a wine bottle through a window. She also broke mirrors. She smashed walls. She spray painted the walls. Daniel had Linda record a new message for the answering machine. So anytime Betty would call, she literally had to hear Linda's voice, which of course caused Betty to be angry and then she would leave these very threatening voicemails on the house phone now betty didn't really care that her children were watching her do this i mean she just felt like she couldn't help herself like she was just so angry at the fact that daniel literally left her and now had moved linda in even though he was denying the affair and she just was so angry that she felt like she couldn't control her actions she says that the children were basically unable to stop her and they were also just so helpless so it was truly just an awful and toxic situation eventually daniel actually got a court order against betty restricting her access to the house but she didn't care as far as she was concerned this was her house and she could come and go as she pleased he couldn't control her now going back to betty's perspective 
Daniel had everything. He was in possession of all of their shared assets as a couple. He was now taking care of the children. He had the house. He had all their furniture, all their valuables, the cars, everything. And there was no settlement or anything. They didn't go to divorce court and divide things up, which is normally what happens. This just all happened like overnight and Betty was just like tricked into it. Now, Daniel didn't officially file for divorce until September of 1985, almost a year later. Now, as I've said before, Daniel was a very well-known lawyer in the area. He had his own firm that was super successful, and all of his friends were also very prominent lawyers in the city. So finding someone to represent him in the divorce was very easy for him. But according to Betty, Daniel pretty much had all the lawyers on his side. So she says that she allegedly struggled to get good representation. So she says that she just felt really isolated and felt like everyone was trying to make sure that she didn't get any of the shared assets between her and Daniel in the divorce. And again, let's not forget that Betty financially supported Daniel so that he could go to law school. So what he was doing was kind of cruel. Now, the legal jargon was complex and confusing, and Betty knew that Daniel basically controlled the whole system. Betty also said that if she just got half of everything, they could just be divorced and it would be done. But allegedly, Daniel just was not accepting those terms. Now, Betty knew what kind of lawyer Daniel was. He was described as being very cold and calculating, even by his own colleagues. He would often walk up to doctors in random public places, at church, or at a synagogue to serve them papers and humiliate them in front of their peers and communities. Going to Daniel's perspective, he felt that Betty wanted to destroy him and just basically leave him with nothing because she was so upset about the cheating and, you know, the gaslighting. Daniel also said that he was trying to keep full custody of the children because they were technically already living with him as Betty had just dropped them off on the doorstep. Daniel was making sure to keep Betty away from the house and from the children. He actually got a restraining order against her and he even installed a system that would screen her phone calls to the house and block them. But this still didn't stop Betty from coming into the house whenever she wanted. Daniel had started paying $9,000 a month to Betty to help her with the finances, but about $4,500 of that went into the upkeep and repair of their rental home in La Jolla, as well as taxes and insurance fees. I know that seems like a lot of money, like $9,000 a month is like crazy, especially for back then. But, you know, we have to remember that Betty was used to having access to all of their money. And of course, it was a lot more than that. You know, on $4,500, she can't take her kids on these, you know, big vacations or give them or herself the life that she was accustomed to. So it was hard for her to like adapt to this. Now, the $9,000 that he would give her a month also came with like rules. Daniel had started this policy where he would find Betty every time she did something he didn't like. So for example, if she would leave like a nasty voicemail on the house phone, she would get fined for it. If she would break into the house, she would get fined for it. So anytime Betty did something that kind of crossed the line, because I feel like, yeah, like leaving nasty voicemails is not okay, especially if your children can hear them, he would fine her. The policy also included if she damaged any windows in the house or just came unannounced or called him names, he would just take some money out of her allowance. He would take $100 if she called him an obscene word, $250 when she set foot on his property, $500 for entering the house, and $1,000 for every time she took the children with her without Daniel's permission. One month, Betty actually owed Daniel $1,300 in these fees. So it's just a lot. Like, 
I get it. You have to put like boundaries. Like it's not okay for her to come in and like break windows and do all this crazy stuff because her children literally live there. But yeah, like the whole like fee system is just wild. Now, Betty had her own explanation as to why she had to break the court order and go to the house. So for example, once in 1986, Betty got a call from Daniel's housekeeper who told her that Daniel and Linda had been in Europe for three weeks and that the children were left home alone and needed food and medicine desperately. The housekeeper had only had a $100 allowance left, so that wasn't enough for her to like feed the children and like take care of them. So of course, Betty wanted to help her kids, but by helping them, it actually cost her money because again, one of the rules was that she couldn't go into the house unannounced without his permission, etc. And that's exactly what she did because she had to go take care of the children. So he fined her for doing this, which is crazy. Now, Betty also said that the kids would go to school with tattered clothes and shoes and Daniel was neglectful of them. Now, the kids did later say that they didn't think their dad wanted them there and the two younger boys desperately wanted to go back and live with their mom. Betty also accused Daniel of not being able to help out their daughter, Lee, who was dealing with a drug problem and he kind of just cut her out of his will because of this as well. Lee also dropped out of high school during this long legal battle and because she dropped out of high school and was doing drugs, Daniel actually cut her out of his will. So things just got worse that same year in 1986. I know like this all happened in a year. It's a lot. Daniel actually sold their coral reef home without even telling Betty about this and he actually moved into a mansion with Linda and the children. He had a judge sign the papers of the sale in the house on Betty's behalf which is crazy and he also insisted that he had asked Betty to sign twice but she had refused. It's crazy that this was even allowed especially during the divorce like half of that money should have been Betty's. So after this Betty followed him to the new house as well. Because Daniel was trying to sell the coral reef home, Betty actually drove a car through his new home and when he tried to pull her out of the car, she had to reach for a large butcher knife under her car seat. Daniel reported this incident and Betty was actually put in a mental health hospital for three days. What she was planning to do with that butcher knife, who knows? Now, you're probably wondering like, okay, like what does Betty's family think about this? Like what do her parents and all her siblings think about this crazy erratic behavior and about this very, you know, intense divorce? Well, Betty's parents were still living in New York and they heard about all the problems that their daughter was having with her divorce. So they actually planned on giving her a visit to help her out during this difficult time. However, when they learned about her hospitalization, they ended up just flying back to New York and they just never came back to visit her. So it doesn't seem like the parents were really too supportive of Betty during this difficult time. So Daniel got close to finalizing the divorce in July of 1986, a year later. At this point, Betty did not have a lawyer because she couldn't find a qualified attorney who wanted to go against Daniel. Allegedly, you know, that's her perspective. So Daniel went and got a dissolution of their marriage pending the term settlement and the children's custody and bifurcated the divorce. So basically in a bifurcated divorce, the court dissolves or legally ends a marriage while still holding jurisdiction over the settlement issues like who's gonna get custody, how the assets are going to be divided, etc. A bifurcated divorce helps both partners move on and potentially get married to new partners quicker too because they become legally single almost immediately. Now, Betty finally did get an attorney but when she got to court for the custody battle of her kids, the judge involved in this case named Anthony C. Joseph saw Daniel walk into the room and said with a smile, quote, 
Daniel Broderick, to what do we owe the honor? Daniel was the president of the San Diego County Bar Association at this point, so everyone knew him and they respected him, even the judge. The judge said that he was a longtime friend of Daniel's and that he held him in a high regard. Then he asked Betty if she had a problem with this. Betty asked him if she had a choice and he said no. So this was not going to be a public trial with a jury involved. It was going to be a private trial held by a good friend of her husband's. And he was basically going to make the decision of whether or not Daniel got to keep custody of the children. It took five long years, but the divorce was finally finalized in 1989. Daniel did get custody of the children and Betty got no visitation rights, which again is crazy to me because despite everything we know about Betty's actions, the youngest kids still wanted to live with her, but they weren't even asked to testify during the trial. So Betty was basically like in a way just terminated as her mother. Daniel had used them many times Betty had gone against court orders to basically make this case. The judge ordered Daniel to pay Betty a monthly sum of $12,500 and this sum was later increased to $1,600 a month. But that was basically it. She didn't get half of the house sale or any assets. Now, again, this might seem like a lot of money and it is a lot of money, like 16K a month is crazy. But if she had gotten half the house, she would have been able to invest it or buy a new house or just done something more with the money. Now, typically in a marriage, even with a prenup, which they didn't have, assets are divided equally. And let's not forget, if it wasn't for Betty paying for Daniel's school and supporting the family, Daniel probably would never have been able to even have access to what he had access to. Betty was kept from seeing her children on important holidays and basically Daniel decided when and if she could see her children. He would drop the kids off at her place whenever he wanted to go on a vacation with Linda without even giving Betty notice. So now Betty and Daniel were finally divorced, but of course, Betty still held a lot of resentment against Daniel and a lot of resentment towards Linda. Now, according to Betty, she said that she one time got a photo of Daniel and Linda in the mail with a note that said, quote, eat your heart out, bitch. She also said that she was receiving advertisements for wrinkle creams and weight loss products that also started arriving in separate envelopes. Now, Betty assumed that it was actually Linda who was sending her all of this to just like torment her and to like basically be like, you're fat and old and like you need wrinkle creams and you need to like lose weight. So she was blaming it on Linda, but a lot of people said that like it's really normal to like just receive this kind of stuff in the mail. Like I'm sure you guys get like junk mail all the time. So it could have been Linda sending this, but it also could have just been like junk mail. Apparently Linda had also been holding on to Betty's wedding china even after she had purchased her own dishes. And I don't know why Linda felt the need to antagonize Betty. Like, if anything, that's just going to make the situation worse. So after all of this, in June of 1988, Linda and Daniel were engaged, which is must have been crazy for Betty to learn about this. But even after learning that her ex-husband was engaged, she didn't change her last name. She was still calling herself Mrs. Broderick. Her friend even suggested that changing her name back to her maiden name might help Betty get over the divorce and also get a better lawyer since they wouldn't know that she was Daniel's ex but Betty said that she wanted to keep the name she was proud of that last name and what it meant in society you know she says that in a way she helped make Daniel Broderick who he was today so she wanted to keep the name now, at this time, Betty had also reached out to her parents for support and she invited them out to San Diego, but they actually refused to go. They said that Betty's behavior was just out of the scope of their experience and they just didn't want anything to do with her. In April of 1989, Daniel and Linda got married. 
Daniel was concerned that Betty would try to crash the wedding, so he actually hired bodyguards for the day, and Linda even asked him to wear a bulletproof vest. Daniel said that there was no way that Betty would kill her, quote, golden goose, you know, the man that was basically paying all her bills. So he was like, no, I don't need to wear like a bulletproof vest. Like, I doubt she would do anything like that to us. But Linda wasn't as sure as Daniel was. She even asked her close friend and a divorce lawyer to help her get a restraining order against Betty. But Daniel wouldn't let her file them. And even when Daniel had her arrested for the things she did, he would just ask the judges to suspend her sentence because, you know, in his mind, Betty is still the mother of his children and he didn't want her to be in jail. So he decided not to wear the bulletproof vest to the wedding. And in the end, Betty actually never even showed up. She didn't show up to the wedding, but of course she was not happy about the marriage. And she actually accused Daniel and Linda of, quote, ruining her children. Like I said before, one of her daughters, Lee, was a high school dropout and struggling with a drug addiction. As for their other daughter, Kim, Daniel had actually asked her to leave the house as soon as she turned 18 years old. And he also said that he wasn't even gonna pay for her college tuition at first, but then he eventually did agree to pay it. So because the girls were older, Betty was focused on making sure that her two young sons, Rhett and Danny, who were 11 and 14, were taken care of. And as they grew up, they also started getting closer to their mom. They had a lot of, quote, informal visits and always stayed in touch with Betty over the phone. Betty even had a special kids line installed in her home where the boys could contact her and they would talk multiple times a day. But sometimes Daniel would turn the ringer off on the house phone and Betty's calls would go to the voicemail, which had Linda's pre-recorded voice. This would throw Betty in a fit of rage and she would leave these really mean and just like, Super inappropriate messages on the answering machine, calling Linda all kinds of names. Daniel actually wrote her a letter telling her to stop like leaving these terrible, terrible messages. In one of those letters, Daniel alleged that Betty was telling the kids that if he didn't send her her allowance that month, that she would kill Daniel and tear down his house. So he warned Betty and said that if she did anything to him or to the house, she would not get any money from him ever again. Daniel kept sending her letters, threatening legal action and asking her to stop leaving messages on the answering machine. And on Saturday, November 4th, 1989, he sent a similar letter. Daniel threatened that he would prevent Betty from ever seeing her sons ever again and take her to court if she didn't stop leaving these crazy messages. Now, at this point, Betty felt like she had enough. She was exhausted by being taken to court so many times and the threats were just getting to her. Daniel felt confident that Betty would never do anything too extreme, but he was wrong because just hours after receiving this letter, Betty would kill Daniel and Linda. On Sunday, November 5th at about 5.30 in the morning, Betty woke up still upset about the letter from the night before. She looked at it again and then she got dressed, got in her car and drove from her home at La Jolla Shores to Daniel and Linda's home in Martin Hills near downtown San Diego, which is about a 17 minute drive. She got out of her car and she let herself into Daniel and Linda's home using her daughter's keys that she took from her backpack weeks earlier. Betty slowly walked into the house and quietly let herself into Daniel and Linda's master bedroom. This is where 44-year-old Daniel and 28-year-old Linda were sleeping. Betty hovered over their bed and then she took out her gun, which was a 38 caliber five-shot revolver that she got two years ago. Linda seemed to be waking up and when she saw Betty hovering above her bed, she screamed, call the police. 
And then Betty immediately started firing. Her first bullet hit a bedside table. The second hit the wall. The next two hit Linda. One hit Linda in the chest and then one hit her head. Linda was killed instantly. Now, Daniel had woken up because obviously the gunshots were very loud. He woke up, saw what was happening, and he was reaching for the phone as he was hit with the bullet in his back. The bullet fractured a rib and actually tore through his right lung. As Daniel fell to the floor, he allegedly told her, quote, okay, okay, you got me. Now, Betty could see that he was within arm's reach of the telephone, so she freaked out. You know, of course, she didn't want him to call 911, so she actually yanked the phone out of the wall, and then she just took off running. After she just brutally killed her ex-husband, Daniel, and his new wife, Linda, Betty got into a phone booth and called her friend. She told her friend that she had just killed Daniel and Linda and that she had meant to kill herself right after, but she ran out of bullets. Betty said that she had even left a suicide note at her home. After calling the friend, Betty called her daughter Lee and her boyfriend and told them the same thing. After confessing to the crime, Betty called the police and told them that something had happened at Daniel's home. So after Daniel's friends got the call, they arrived at the scene and they climbed into the home through a window. They walked into Daniel and Linda's bedroom and that's where they found the bodies. Shortly after 7.30 in the morning, the police arrived at the scene. The two officers who responded to the call saw two men walk out of the front door who asked them to call the ambulance. Now, these two friends that went to the house were Daniel and Betty's mutual friends named Brian Forbes and Bradley Wright. So Brian and Bradley tell the police like, hey, call an ambulance. And police listen to this, they call the ambulance and they also ask Brian and Bradley to take them to where the bodies were. When police looked at the bodies, they saw Linda lying on the edge of the bed and they saw Daniel on the floor. They checked the pulse on both of them and confirmed that they were dead. They asked Brian and Bradley to leave so that they could start conducting their investigation. The police checked the house for any other victims or any potential suspects, but they didn't find anyone else in the house. Thankfully, the kids had spent that night at Betty's house, so they were not home at the time of the murders. So after going through the house, they closed up the house and they didn't let anyone else in. Now, Betty and Daniel's divorce had been so public that the police immediately knew that it was Betty who called the friends and the police. They sent out an all-units broadcast for Elizabeth, Betty, and Broderick because they suspected that she had committed these murders. A six-person homicide team arrived at the scene and they were briefed by the responding officers. They also found that the telephone had been disconnected in the hallway just outside of the landing of the bedroom. So they went back to the main bedroom and they walked to the entertainment center in the room right beside the bed and that's where they found the ripped phone line that the phone had been disconnected from. So both the phone and the broken cords were taken into evidence so that they could collect fingerprints. The police went to Betty's house and asked the kids if they knew where their mom was. They also checked the house for a suicide note or any other evidence that would signal any motive to kill on Betty's part, but they claimed that they didn't find a note. What they did find were some papers on the kitchen counter and a small black gun case in the drawer of the vanity in Betty's bedroom along with two boxes of ammo. Now, the papers that they found on the kitchen counter were two letters addressed to Betty from Daniel's team. There were also cardboard boxes all around the apartment, so it just seemed like someone was either moving in or moving out. Now, Lee was at Betty's house at the time, and she was asked by the detective for a formal interview. Lee's apartment was also surveilled because Betty's car had been spotted parked directly across from her apartment. 
So police asked Lee if they could search her apartment and she gave them the keys to search. The police checked the apartment and they asked Lee and her boyfriend to just wait outside. Once they were sure that Betty wasn't hiding in Lee's apartment, they told them that they could come back inside. Then Jason, Lee's boyfriend, showed the police a purse that was left on the ground and inside the purse was a handgun. Lee gave the keys to Betty's car to the police as well. So it was clear that Betty had been here. In fact, she had gone directly to her daughter's apartment after she killed Daniel and Linda, but had left. By mid-afternoon, Betty was just nowhere to be found. However, a few hours later at 5.30 p.m. that same day, Betty turned herself in at a jail in Santee and she never denied that she pulled the trigger and that she killed Daniel and Linda. Betty was arrested and she was charged with second degree murder. Her trial began on October 22nd, 1990, and she pleaded not guilty to two counts of murder. Her lawyers were trying to have her found guilty of manslaughter rather than second-degree murder. And this was actually the first San Diego trial to be broadcast on Court TV cable network, so this got a lot of attention. On October 24th, their daughter Kim testified against Betty. She actually took her dad's side in the trial and in the history of her parents' relationship. Kim said that when her parents were together, they would argue a lot about Daniel never being home and always being out with his friends. Kim said that when her dad would go out after work, Betty would actually lock him out and once he actually knocked the door down. In Kim's testimony, she said that Betty hated Daniel and wanted the kids to hate him too. She also described her mother's behavior as being very violent in the past towards Daniel, but also towards the children. Kim said that she never saw her father hit her mother, but that she did see that Betty would scratch him and that Betty had actually hit Kim and Lee when they were kids. Kim also testified that her mother called her after the murders and said, quote, you know I had to do it. I had no other choice. I couldn't let him win. One of us had to die. So after Kim's testimony, Lee testified and she seemed to have support for her mother, Betty. So Kim and Lee would actually sit on opposite sides of the courtroom because Lee was on Betty's side and Kim was on her dad's side. So they weren't really like supporting the same people, but they were still on good terms with each other and they still like would talk to each other when they would see each other in the hallway. Lee testified that once Betty was hitting Daniel on the head with her keys and that Daniel kind of pushed Lee aside and punched Betty in the chest. She also testified that Betty came to her house after the murder. In court, a phone recording that was used in Betty and Daniel's divorce was actually used. Daniel had recorded a phone call between Danny, their son, and Betty where Danny asked his mom to stop using bad words. He told his mom that he thought that she only cared about getting money in the divorce implying that she didn't really care about getting him. Now, Danny is 11 in this phone call and the phone call is just so, so sad, you guys, because, you know, you can just hear this little kid just telling his mom to please stop behaving this way, to stop being aggressive, to stop hurting the family and to just care about more than their dad having a new wife and about money. However, Betty just honestly seemed so cold in this call. Like, I feel like her she was just like disconnected. You know, she was completely disconnected from her children and 
all she had on her mind was like getting back at Daniel, getting money, ruining their life, like making Linda be miserable, etc. Danny even added in this phone call that his mom just wants everything because she's selfish. And Betty was so shocked when he said that. I just feel so bad for what these kids went through. And I do just want to note that on this call, Danny says that he's having a terrible time at his dad's house and that he just wanted to be back and live with his mom, but that he couldn't until she like controlled her behavior. So it's just really sad like what children have to go through in divorces on october 30th it was time for betty's testimony on the stand betty said that she had no intention to kill daniel and linda her plan was to go to their house scare them with the gun and then take her own life in front of them she also said that she did not remember pulling the trigger she testified that daniel had emotionally and financially harassed her during their divorce battle and he basically just like left her ruined she also added that people who knew her before 1983 knew the real Betty and everything changed after Daniel started cheating on her. She even accused Daniel of domestic violence. She described Daniel as a volatile drunk who once grabbed her by the throat and hit her many times, leaving her injured. A punch from Daniel once broke her sternum and he gave her a black eye once. They were skiing one time and Betty's ski brushed his skis and his response to this was to hit Betty so hard that she went flying through the snow. She hurt her ankle so bad that she couldn't even walk. Her attorney Jack Early argued that Betty was a battered wife and she only committed murder because after years of physical and psychological abuse, she was pushed to her breaking point. Meanwhile, the prosecutors argued that the murders were premeditated and that Betty was in no way battered and she was just a jealous person and a killer and in regards to the prosecutor saying that it was premeditated i feel like the fact that she stole her daughter's keys just kind of i don't know it kind of just shows that she did have a plan of doing this i mean why else would she steal the daughter's keys it's because she knew that she was going to go to the house and kill them now a forensic psychiatrist and criminologist testified that betty had histrionic and narcissistic personality disorders and histrionic disorder is a disorder that causes someone to have attention-seeking behavior. So the jury had to decide between second-degree murder and manslaughter, but they couldn't come to a unanimous decision because two jurors felt like it was manslaughter while the other 10 just didn't agree. The jury said that they were split because of the defense's claim that Daniel had mistreated both Betty and the children. So on November 20th, Betty's first trial ended in a mistrial. A year passed and Betty was still awaiting her next trial to begin. On April 16, 1991, Betty and her lawyers offered to plead guilty in exchange for a plea bargain that would send her to prison for just 20 years. But this plea was rejected because apparently Betty only agreed to plead guilty to several lesser crimes that she did around the murder, but she didn't plead guilty to the murder itself. So she continued to wait for the next trial and on September 1st, 1991, and while she was in jail, she actually got into a fight with some officers. Betty was actually accused of injuring the officers and smearing feces on them one of the officers even sued betty for this so she obviously was not doing well in jail and in her defense her lawyer said the officers had intentionally provoked betty so they could capture her reaction on videotape a month later on october 15th betty's new trial began and she used the same defense attorney and the same defense so the prosecution came in strong they were accusing betty of executing a cold-blooded murder and asked that she be charged with first-degree murder 
But of course, the defense held its ground and insisted that the sentence should be voluntary manslaughter because Betty hadn't done this out of the blue. She had been driven to a breaking point after years of abuse and intimidation. In a very intense cross-examination by the prosecution, Betty said that when she pulled the trigger, she was in an altered state of consciousness and again repeated what she said in the first trial, that she did not remember pulling the trigger. The prosecution also played several of the violent and aggressive voicemails that Betty had left at Daniel's house in court. And in one of them, Betty can be heard telling one of her sons to beat up his father while calling him all kinds of names and threatening violence against him. Now, some people believed that the judge severely limited Betty's defense in the second trial while allowing the prosecution to expand their arguments. In this trial, the prosecution presented Betty as a vengeful, cold-blooded murderer who was not upset about the end of her marriage, as much as she was upset that her days as a socialite were over. The jury deliberated for four days until they unanimously found Betty guilty of murder in the second degree on two counts. The minimum for second degree conviction is 15 years. Betty was calm as the jurors were asked to deliver their verdict and she even smiled at them individually. She was also convicted of two counts of illegally using a firearm in the commission of a felony. Betty was then sentenced to 32 years to life with the possibility of parole in 19 years. When Betty's attorney, Jack, turned around and asked her if she was okay, she nodded and touched his hand. But Jack later told the media that Betty only smiled in the courtroom because she's a people pleaser and the full impact of the verdict just hadn't hit her yet. Jack said that he felt the jurors reached a fair judgment based on the evidence they provided, but he also revealed that the judge had refused to include a key piece of evidence that would have helped him make a case for Betty. The fact that Daniel had once secretly hired a hitman to kill Betty. Yeah, that's crazy. Like when I read that, I was like, huh? Like, where's more information about this but the judge's reasoning was that since betty did not know about this when she committed the murders the detail was not relevant to her state of mind at the time however if this is true that he did hire a hitman i feel like that definitely shows the type of person that daniel was now, a little bit about what Linda's family was feeling during this time. Her sister Maggie was happy that the trial was over so that the media could stop dragging Daniel and Linda's name through the mud and that Betty's spectacle would finally be finished. Now, Daniel's brothers, Terry and Larry, were outraged by the verdict because they wanted Betty to get a first-degree charge. Now, what was really shocking is that, remember the friend that I said went to the house and discovered the bodies, Brad Wright? Well, it turns out that he was actually dating Betty after the divorce. He was, again, a mutual friend of Daniel and Betty, and he came out and said that they had actually been dating and that Betty was just misunderstood. She was not a socialite. She was just a housewife and a mother of four kids trying to settle a divorce. That just really shocked me that she had a boyfriend because she was just so obsessed with, like, Daniel and Linda and, like, obsessed with, like, ruining their relationship and their new marriage and just everything, even though she had a boyfriend who... I mean, I don't know if the relationship was good or not, but it still was just shocking to know that she was in a relationship during this time. Now, Betty's story actually touched a lot of the jurors. One of them said that throughout the deliberations, he thought that they would have a hung jury again. He said that all the jurors had sympathy for Betty and felt that it was a tremendous tragedy, but ultimately, they saw enough evidence of her extreme behavior towards Daniel and Linda over the years that ultimately led to the murders. 
it is kind of sad that Betty really lacks support from her family through this tough time in her life. Again, Betty's parents refused to help her through the divorce and they did not attend her two trials either. Betty had often said that they wanted her to be perfect and when she wasn't, they wanted no part in her life. Another juror said that even though he did believe Betty, his job was to listen to the witnesses as well. Betty could have been lying about the whole thing. Three of the female jurors on the jury had been leaning towards a manslaughter conviction, but they were ultimately convinced by their male counterparts to compromise so that they could reach a judgment. So after Betty's conviction, Rhett and Danny, the two youngest son, actually went to go live with Daniel's brother, Larry's ex-wife, Kathy. I don't really know how that worked out. Well, Kim and Lee lived by themselves in Colorado. In 1992, Betty's children, Kim and Danny, went on Oprah to share their side of what happened. They said that at that point, they had not seen their mother since she was arrested, but that they did plan on visiting her in prison soon. Kim said that she just wanted her mom to tell her what really happened because she just couldn't understand the thought process of Betty planning to kill herself and then ended up murdering Daniel and Linda instead. Dan Jr. said that he heard his his mother say multiple times that she would kill Daniel, but Dan Jr. never believed her. Danny also revealed that the reason he asked his mom on the phone to stop saying bad words about his dad and Linda was because his dad told him that he wasn't allowed to see his mother until she stopped saying those things. At the time, Danny thought that the court was controlling that, but now he knows that it was his dad. The kids also do believe that, you know, Betty was jealous of Linda. And Danny even said that he thought his mother was jealous that Linda got to have their dad and the money and that the mom didn't get to have any money anymore. Kim also understands that her mom doesn't feel remorse for killing Daniel, but that she just wishes that her mom could feel remorse for leaving the kids parentless. Like, she literally killed their dad. Like, no matter what he did, no matter, you know, if he cheated, if he did this or that, like, he's still a father to these children, and it just, it's terrible that she just literally left her children without a father and now she's just in jail. Now, Danny says that he thinks that his mom can't show any remorse because then to her, it's like Daniel won. Her youngest son, Rhett, on the Oprah show said that he hoped one day that his mother would be released. He said, quote, she's a nice lady. Everyone here would like her if they spoke with her on any topic other than my dad. Keeping her in prison isn't really helping her. She's not a danger to society. The only two people she was a danger to are dead. A friend and lawyer of Daniel has since come forward saying that Daniel did intentionally manipulate the court system so that he could have custody of the children, get the home, and control Betty's finances. Now, Betty requested parole in 2010, but her request was denied because the Board of Parole hearings said that she didn't show any remorse and she didn't acknowledge any wrongdoing. She said, quote, I allowed the voices in my head to completely take over. I took the lives of two wonderful people who were loved by many. Now, she did not elaborate on whether or not she felt sorry about what she did. She just said that Linda came at me and then the gun went off. She reapplied for parole, but again was denied in November of 2011. She tried again, but then was denied in January of 2017. She apparently won't be eligible for parole again until 2032 when she'll be 84 years old. So because this case was so big, it's been turned into several movies and TV shows. In 1992, the story was turned into a movie called A Woman Scorned, The Betty Broderick Story. It was also the story for season two of Dirty John, which was called Dirty John, The Betty Broderick Story, which is on Netflix. It's a lot. I know that this case was crazy. I think it just definitely does bring 
the question of, you know, how far can you be pushed to? And I don't know, I would just love to know what you guys think about this. I know there's so many perspectives to this. I know a lot of people feel like Betty was pushed to this and that what she did was justified in a way. Other people feel like this was not justified. I mean, no matter if someone cheats on you and does this and that, like murder is never the answer. And I feel like I definitely agree with that. I don't think that Linda and Daniel deserve to be murdered. I mean, he was a father. She was someone's loved one. I just don't think that they deserve to die this way. And I don't know. It's crazy because I generally feel like to this day, Betty does not feel any type of remorse. Like she's truly like accepted what she has done and just honestly feels like she made that decision like there's nothing else that she can do about it but she just doesn't feel sorry for it so it is really sad what her children had to go through and i don't know it's just like one of the craziest cases i've heard in a minute of like this divorce just felt like it was like never ending like i feel like you can just go deeper and deeper into this and just get into a bigger hole about this divorce about everything that was happening so definitely let me know what you guys think about this down below that's pretty much everything i have for today's video thank you guys so much for being here and for taking the time to listen to what happened to daniel and linda if you're part of the hashtag audio familia thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode if you go watch the video version later on my channel make sure to leave me a comment letting me know that you're from the hashtag audio familia if there's ever any other cases you would like me to cover also leave me a comment under my youtube video or send me a message on instagram don't forget to follow rate and review what happened wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to my channel true crime jackie on youtube for full video episodes you can find me on instagram and on tiktok at true crime jackie bye guys